I want us to turn our attention tonight to the book of Malachi. We have come to the end of this series on major messages from the minor prophets. We tried to do it in a little bit different way from the way that we have commonly uh, looked at the minor prophets, which is from a sequential point of view, that is how they appear within the Old Testament canon. Uh, we thought that it would be good to look at it from a chronological point of view. The interesting thing about Malachi is that Malachi is both sequentially and chronologically uh, the last book of the Old Testament canon. Uh, Malachi was written somewhere between 515 and 445 BC, that is some 400 years uh, before the birth of Christ. Most people only know one thing from Malachi. If, if I were to ask you to quote anything from Malachi, what would you be able to quote? Will a man rob God? What, what, what comes after that? Bring all the tithe to the storehouse. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay. There is more to Malachi than that, and the context in which that is actually said is uh, very important. In fact, that's what I want us to look at. I invite your attention to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to focus on the first 12 verses of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi uh, writes uh, a prophetic message and a moral message where the prophet speaks on behalf of God to call people, particularly religious leaders, to a more authentic worship of God. That includes not only reverence for the temple, but a commitment to live harmonious and spiritual lives among one another. Why is that important? Why, we, we mentioned the temple in that. We told you before, Old Testament uh, writings are, are different from New Testament writings because in the Old Testament, the presence of God with his people was not an invasive thing. It was not an invasive uh, uh, event. Uh, it, it, it was uh, God's presence being made manifest in certain places. Where does God present himself primarily in the Old Testament? Well, before there was a temple, he presents himself in something called a tabernacle. Now, do you know what a tabernacle is? A tabernacle is a tent. It's a tent of meeting, and, and when, when, when God tells Moses uh, to bring his people out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land, as a part of the process of, of their uh, uh, moving from uh, Egypt to Canaan, they are told that they are to worship God first on the mountain. God God leads them to Mount Sinai, where, where, where God gives to Moses uh, the uh, law, 
the, the what we commonly call the Ten Commandments, but there's so much more to it than just the Ten Commandments. But then after they leave the mountain, as they're making their way, progressing their way to Canaan, God gives Moses very specific instruction on how to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. Why was the tabernacle important? Because the tabernacle became a portable worship place for God. Remember, these people don't have a home yet. They're on their, they're, they're making a pilgrimage to the promised land. They have not arrived at the promised land. But God says that all along the way, my presence will be with you in the tabernacle. When you get up to go, the tabernacle goes with you. When you settle down, the first thing you do once you settle down is you erect the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a huge tent. You ever been to a circus? I, I, I know nobody does circuses anymore. But you know, when, because when you say tent, if you're talking to the wrong crowd, they're thinking about them little pup tents and, 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 and the Boy Scout tents. No, we're talking about a huge tent of meeting uh, that, that had very long poles to hold up the canopies, and, and God gave specific instructions as to what kind of wood was to be used. And inside this tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant and all of that. The tabernacle was the mobile residence of God with his people. And it remained the residence of God with his people for a long, long time. Even after the people settled into the promised land, the tabernacle was still the, 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 the abode of of God. One day David stands up and, and, and he's looking at the tabernacle that had been set up from his palace. And he says, I got a problem. I'm living in a palace and God's house is a tent. And, 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 and there, there's something wrong with that. I'm going to build a temple to the Lord. And, 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 and he calls in his prophet, a man by the name of Nathan, and he says, uh, I, I'm going to build this temple to the Lord. What do you think? And Nathan says, that's a good idea. You go ahead and do that. And then God speaks to Nathan and says, no, you go back and tell him, no, don't do that, because I didn't tell him he could do that. Uh, number one, I didn't ask for a temple. Number two, if there is going to be a temple, he ain't going to build it because there's too much blood on his hands, too much innocent blood on his hands. A temple ultimately is built, but it is not built by David. It is built by his son, Solomon, who succeeded him on the throne. Once the temple was built, if you read in Second Chronicles, you know, everybody, once again, I know how we are about the Old Testament. There are only certain verses that we know from certain books. If I would ask you anything about Second Chronicles, the only thing you know is Second Chronicles 7 and 14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal the land. Would you believe that all of that is just one verse? That, that, that's the 14th verse of the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles. But when God says that, that's part of a larger response that God makes to Solomon at the conclusion of the ceremony dedicating the temple which had been built to the Lord. The temple was built, sacrifices were made, a worship experience was had, and at the end of the day, God appears before Solomon, and he says, you've done a good thing here. I'm pleased with this temple. I will make my dwelling here in this temple, uh, but you have to do certain things. Now, what happens after that? I'm getting to a point as to why the temple is, is so important here. What happens here is that the people corrupt themselves. The people 
engage in idol worship. Soon, the people become a divided nation. Israel becomes two nations, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel falls into idol worship to a worse degree or to a more severe degree than the southern kingdom does. And they are carried away by a group of people called the Assyrians. And we don't ever hear about the northern kingdom again. We don't know what happens to them, at least not from the standpoint of Scripture. The southern kingdom of Judah lasts about another 150 years, between 135 and 150 years, and then they too are carried away into exile by a group of people called the Babylonians. And as part of that, have you ever heard of a king called Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. He, he lays the city of Jerusalem to siege. What does sieging mean? Nebuchadnezzar took his armies and he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. He hemmed them into the city. He would not allow anyone to enter. He would not allow anyone to leave. He would not allow supplies to go back and forth. The people were trapped in the city. And what happens if you get trapped in a place where your food supply is limited, where, where your hygiene supplies? And remember, th these people don't have running water, and they don't have filtered water, and they don't have all of the, 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 the things that you and I have today. So animals and people are eating and drinking and bathing in the same water. Pretty soon, disease begins to step in, to, to creep in to the people. The, the food supply is depleted, and people begin to starve to death. And, and, and sieging is a terrible way for them to die. But, but the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem for a period of two years. They, they just sat outside the walls and watched the people uh, waste away until finally the people were so wasted, so incapable of defending themselves, that they break into the city, tear down the walls, and carry the people out. And part of that Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Scripture says he, the, the, the destruction was complete. He tore it down to the point that not one brick laid on top of the other. Now, you have to imagine, Shiloh is a pretty big place, right? Not just the sanctuary, but the educational facility and, and the old church. Imagine this place times about five. That's the temple. It's huge. So when it says not one brick laid on top of the other, it was a complete decimation of the most important place in the city of Jerusalem and in the nation of Judah. It was destroyed. And for the entire time that the... Uh, the people of Judah were in captivity in Babylon, and later they became the captives of the Medo-Persian Empire because the Babylonian Empire was overrun by the Medo-Persian Empire. For that entire time, for about a 70-year period of time, there was no temple. When the Medo-Persian Empire uh, comes on the scene, uh, the, 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 the king of the Medo-Persian Empire decides that he will allow members of uh, the, the people of Judah, to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. Now, uh, the scripture puts it this way. It says that the king had a dream, and in the dream, God told him to let the people go, and he 
gets up the next morning, and he allows for them to go back in waves. Whoever wants to go can go, and that's the first wave. And then there was a second wave, and I believe, if I'm correct, there was a third wave of people who went back. And they went back with the intention of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple because the temple was the abode of God. God didn't reside in the hearts of men. You and I are temples. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the living temple of the Holy Spirit, that the, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Well, that's us. That's today. That's post-Pentecost. Prior to Pentecost, God did not reside in the hearts of people pervasively. He, he invaded certain people and used them for certain tasks. And once those tasks were completed, then he would leave them. No, the presence of God was not in a group of people. The presence of God was where God said his presence was. And God said his presence was in the temple. So sacrifices had to be done in the temple. Worship experiences had to take place within the temple. And, and so when the people went back, they went back with the intention of rebuilding the temple. Now, what did we learn last week? Here's quiz time for you. What did we learn last week? There was a, somebody said, I don't know, I wasn't here last week. Okay, well, well let, let me help you out. Even though they went back to rebuild the temple, the people got lax in the rebuilding job, and they didn't do it. And so for a period of 16 years, no temple work was done. And God sent prophets and sent governors with the intention of uh, rallying the people back into rebuilding the temple. Remember last week, the main verse that we talked about was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That had to do with the rebuilding of the temple uh, walls, that, 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 that it could not be done in human strength, but that it could and would be done in divine strength. Well, now, fast forward to Malachi. I'm trying to get you somewhere. Fast forward to Malachi. Malachi is written after the temple has been rebuilt. But the, even though the temple has been rebuilt, there is still another problem that makes worship within the temple tenuous and problematic. And the problem was there was corruption within the leadership of the temple. If you read Malachi, it's not a long book. If you read Malachi, Malachi spends much of his time dealing with the corruption that exists within the religious and the political leadership of Jerusalem. Turn in your Bibles. I told you turn to Malachi chapter 3. Turn to Malachi chapter 1. And let's start with verse 6. Isn't it true that a son honors his father and a worker his master? So if I'm your father, where's the honor? This is God talking. If I'm your father, where's the honor? If I'm your master, where's the respect? God of the angel armies is calling you on the carpet. You priests despise me. 
You hear that? You priests despise me. You say, not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship. You ask, what do you mean defiling? What's defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. And when you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship, animals that you're trying to get rid of, blind and sick and crippled animals, isn't that defiling? Try a trick like that with your banker or your senator. How far do you think it will get you? God of the angel armies asks you. This goes on and on and on. When he talks about using sick and, 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 and inferior animals, remember when animal sacrifices were to be made, they were to be made with the very best that you had. Animals without blemish, without spot. So Malachi, speaking on behalf of God, asking rhetorical questions, saying, how is it that you say that we're doing this? How is it that you say that we're behaving this way? He says, you're doing it in that you are defiling the temple worship. You're doing it in such a way that shows that you have no respect for who I am. You're going through the motions of worship. Hear me. You're going through the motions of worship, but there is no real worship there. Question, because y'all are just looking at me like he didn't taken us through 500 years of history in, in 15 minutes. And I did, I did a pretty good job of it too, if, if I do say so myself. <laughs> But, 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 but let me ask you a question. Are we here to truly worship the Lord? Or are we here simply going through the motions? And if we are simply going through the motions of worship, then is that not disrespectful to God? If God says, I have an expectation that you do one thing, and you do it in form but not in substance, is that not disrespectful to the God who called you? Have you ever been told to do something, but you didn't really want to do it and your heart wasn't in it, and so you, you, you half-heartedly did it? My wife and I uh, have, have, have we, 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 we split the chores of the house. I, I do the laundry. I like doing laundry. I'm not big on doing dishes. Uh, uh, I, I don't like doing dishes. Uh, uh, we, we have a dishwasher, which ought to make it easier, but I found out that certain dishes don't go in the dishwasher. I, I don't know why that is, but... <laughs> But, 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 but certain dishes don't go in the dishwasher. So the dishes that don't go in the dishwasher, you have to wash by hand. And, 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 and sometimes I'll let the dishes that don't go in the dishwasher just sit. And, 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 and I'm supposed to put them in the sink so that they can soak, but sometimes I just let them sit 
without soaking. And then whatever was in the plate, the dish that couldn't go in the dishwasher, it gets hard on that. And, but, but now you can't scrub it with the scrubbing thing because that will damage the dish. So, so you've got to actually take the rag or the sponge, because really we don't use rags, we use sponges. And, and, and you have to be very careful in how you dig some of that stuff up. Hey, baby, is she in there? Yeah, she's in there, okay. <laughs> you, you, you have to be very careful about how you dig that stuff out of there. And, and, and occasionally, what, what, what will happen is she will look at a plate that I said was clean, And she'll, she, 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 she doesn't make declarative statements. She, she makes uh, interrogatives, well. accusatory interrogatives. <laughs> Didn't you say you washed this dish? Were you looking at the dish when you washed it? How did you miss that huge spot? Well, the truth of the matter is, I don't like doing dishes. And so when I have to actually manually do the dishes, if I'm not in the best of moods, I'm just going and throw the dish to the side. You, 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 you. My, my, my point is this. If you are only half-heartedly worshiping God, you're no different than me halfway washing dishes. You're going through the motions. You're making it look like you're actually doing something. When in point of fact, you're not. I've said this to, to, to you before, and, and people think that when you say it, it sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to sound arrogant. I mean it to sound factual and helpful. It's, it's actually helpful to you if you think about it. If you don't want to be here, don't come. Because you're not, all you're doing, if you, if you come here and you don't want to be here, all you're doing is, is form without substance. And form without substance is not a helpful thing. Form without substance means that you have gone through the motions, but you're not actually committed to what it is that you're doing. Well, it, it, it gets into more than just being here for the, for, for the purposes of worship. Jesus has certain expectations of us. It's not really hard. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I say it's not really hard. It's not really hard to know what the expectations are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As I have loved you, so should you love one another. It's not hard to know what he, what he expects. But if you can't give yourself completely to that, then what you're doing is you're exercising form without substance. And you're not helping anybody, including yourself. Because you think you're doing something when, in fact, you're not. One of the things that irritates her is that when, after I've done the dishes half-heartedly, she's got to go back and do what she thought was already done. And on a certain level, she thinks that I'm doing it to be rebellious. She thinks I'm doing it so that she won't ask me to wash dishes anymore. 
I'm not saying she's right about that. I'm just telling you what, <laughs> what she thinks. Well, God knows when you're serious. And God knows when you're not. Here's the thing about God. God can accept someone who makes a mistake who's trying hard to do right. God, God's okay with that. But God has a problem with folk who ain't really interested in doing right but are, but are, but are trying to put on a front that they're doing right. And I got a New Testament example to help you with that. Turning your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. say it's chapter 5. I'm going to find out in just a second. Acts of the Apostles. Yes, chapter 5. To keep it in its context, look at the very end of Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Joseph, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of comfort, a Levite born in Cyprus, sold a field that he owned, brought the money, and made an offering of it to the apostles. That's the preface for what happens in Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, his wife, Sapphira, conniving in this with him, sold a piece of land, secretly kept part of the price for himself, and then brought the rest to the apostles and made an offering of it. Peter said, Ananias, how did Satan get you to lie to the Holy Spirit and secretly keep back part of the price of the field? Before you sold it, it was all yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with as you wished. So what got into you to pull a trick like this? You didn't lie to men, but to God. Ananias, when he heard those words, fell down dead. That put the fear of God into everyone who heard it. The younger men went right to work and wrapped him up, then carried him out and buried him. Not more than three hours later, his wife, knowing nothing of what had happened, came in. Peter said, tell me, were you given this price for your field? Yes, she said, that price. Peter responded, what's going on here that you connive to conspire against the spirit of the master? The men who buried your husband are at the door, and you're next. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than she also fell down dead. When the young men returned, they found her body. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Half-hearted, fake, sloppy, a sham, hypocrisy. Now, granted, this is an extreme. What happens in Acts chapter 5 is an extreme, and we don't see this happening all over the place. And I'm not trying to scare anybody into believing that, that, that you're going to drop dead, okay? That's not the point. The point is there are consequences for thinking that you can put something over on God. 
you're not honoring him, you're not helping yourself, and you're doing harm to the body because the body is caught up in your mess. Believe me when I tell you this. Everybody in here has somebody who's watching you. Not me. I'm a nobody. Everybody has somebody who's watching them. I learned a long time ago. I've been in the church all my life, and I've been pastoring now for 33 years. One thing I've learned is that most churches have more than one pastor. You got the person who sits in, in the chair and says, I'm the pastor of the church. But churches have 5, 10, 15 pastors. Choir got a pastor. And if you got five choirs, you got five pastors. Choir got a pastor. Usher's got a pastor. Sunday school got several pastors. Every Sunday school teaches their own little pastor. You know how I know? Because there are some people who won't go to Sunday school class if they teach ain't teaching. If you can't say amen, say ouch, because I know I'm telling the truth. Churches have more than one pastor. And, and the point I'm making is this. There are people who are looking at you. There are people who take their cues from you. There are people who who are trying to emulate your behavior. You have an impact on somebody. You may not want to acknowledge it. You may not think that it's great, but somebody is paying attention to you. Consequently, the only Jesus that some people will see is the Jesus they see in you. And so their perception of who Jesus is is based on your character and your behavior. So if they come away with the idea that Jesus is corrupt or that Jesus is small or that Jesus is ill-tempered or that Jesus is negative or that Jesus is racist or that Jesus is intolerant of people who don't think and act like you do, it's because they got it from you. They're watching you. They're learning from you. And so the corruption that exists that Malachi is addressing is the corruption that comes from the fact that there were those who were supposed to be leading people in the proper, appropriate, respectful worship of God who were leading them down a path that was all form and no substance. And God has a problem with that. And God says, I'm tired of it. So, 32 minutes in, I'm finally getting to Malachi chapter 3. In order to appropriately interpret Malachi chapter 3, you have to start at the very end of Malachi chapter 2. And and this is the second time that we've done this in Malachi. There's a reason for this. 
Chapters and verses were not written into the original manuscripts. Chapters and verses were added by later editors. Uh, to, and, and, and the whole purpose of chapters and verses was to help the reader find significant passages by remembering what, how do you know what John 3.16 is? And, and how do you know that it's John 3.16? Because somebody put chapters and verses in, it, in, in there. There are 150 psalms. The only one that everybody knows is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want that. If you're going to sit there and say, well, I know more than that. I said the only one everybody knows. I didn't say the only one you know. The only one everybody knows is the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In order to get the appropriate understanding of what's going on in chapter 3, you have to start at the end of chapter 2. You make God tired with all your talk. How do we tire him out, you ask? By saying God loves sinners and sin alike. God loves all. And also by saying judgment. God's too nice to judge. That leads you into chapter 3. Look, I'm sending my messenger on ahead to clear the way for me. Suddenly, out of the blue, the leader you've been looking for will enter his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant, the one you've been waiting for. Look, he's on his way. A message from the mouth of God of the angel armies. Now, there are two ways of interpreting these first verses in Malachi chapter 3. One is the, 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 the typical long-range uh, interpretation that most of us put on. That when, when he says, look, my messenger is coming, that it's a reference to the coming of John the Baptist, who leads the way for Jesus. That's the way we typically, that's the way preachers typically preach this, because we don't preach it unless it's Christmas time. I'm just telling you the way that it is. But there is, there is a different way of looking at it. When he says, look, I'm sending my messenger, how would it read to you if, if it said this? Look, I'm sending Malachi on ahead to clear the way for me. Now you would say, that's not what it says. It says, I'm sending my messenger. Do you know what the name Malachi means? my messenger. So prophecy, books of prophecy generally have a twofold meaning. There is an immediate meaning. Let me ask you a question. If I were to talk to you, I, I, I have a friend who, who occasionally I go to lunch with, and whenever I go to lunch with him, he wants to talk to me about cosmological things that are going to happen a thousand years in the future. Pastor, did, did, did you know that, that, that a recent scientific report came out that said that the sun is on the verge of exploding and, 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 and within the next thousand to ten thousand years the sun is going to explode and that means that the whole solar system is going to go dead? Now, what do I say to this person out loud? Oh, really? I didn't know that. 
do you know what I'm saying on the inside? Why do I care about the sun exploding a thousand years from now? Unless something really strange happens, I ain't going to be here. That's somebody else's problem. Now, I raise that question because of this. If this book of prophecy was only giving a futurist reference to the coming of the Messiah, then what is the point of the message to the people who are receiving it 400 years before Jesus was born? Prophecy has a twofold meaning. And for us to have an appropriate appreciation for prophecy, we can't just be satisfied with a futurist view of what the passage means. We have to spend some time trying to understand what the passage means to those to whom it was sent. If this friend of mine were to tell me I saw in the news that the, the sun is going to explode in a year, well, I got a problem now. And guess what? You got a problem, too. <laughs> be, 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 because because that, that, that's within my purview. That, that, that has to do with something that's going to happen in, 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 in what I believe to be. I mean, I know we can all leave here in the next moment, but I plan on being around for another year. So, 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 so that kind of concerns me. But when you start talking about stuff that's going to happen 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 50,000 years into the future, I'm like, oh, really? Isn't that interesting? Just a little cue from you, for, for you, about me. If you hear me say, oh, really? That's interesting. That means I don't care nothing about what it is you're talking about. I, I, I just thought I'd let you know that. So the futurist view is very clear. When it says, behold, I'm sending my messenger, the, the, the futurist view is that the messenger is John the Baptist, and then it says, suddenly out of the blue, the leader you've been looking for will enter his temple, the messenger of life. That's a reference to Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. That's the futurist view. But that's 400 years into the future. So then what's the message to the people to whom Malachi is speaking. Look, I'm sending my messenger. I'm sending Malachi. I'm sending my prophet to clear the way for me. I'm sending a true prophet in contrast to all the fake prophets that you got all around you. I'm sending someone who really talks to me and who I talk to, who I've given a message to. And I have an assignment for him. And the assignment that I have for him is to clear the way so that my leader can come and bring you back to the proper worship of me. Now, when he says my leader, to the people with whom he's speaking, we don't know the name of the person that he's talking about. Because you're sitting there asking, well, who's the leader of these people? I don't know. And nobody else knows either. 
So we're not going to focus on what we don't know. Let's focus on what we know. And what we know is God says through the prophet, I'm sending this prophet to clear the way for me. That's a message for us. You don't have to know who, who the leader is that's coming. What you have to do is put yourself in the position of the messenger. Because isn't that what you are? Oh, I know that's what you are. You, you're supposed to say, oh, yeah, that's what I am. Y'all been to Sunday school, right? Y'all come to church on Sunday morning, right? Y'all do know that that's your job. Matthew chapter 28. All power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And I am calling you to go. And as you go, to make disciples. Well, how are we to make disciples? You are to teach them. That has to do with being a messenger. You are to teach them whatsoever I have given unto you. You don't like Matthew chapter 28? Fine. Go to Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. Once the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Well, how is it that you're a witness? You're a witness because you, you, you give testimony to what you have seen and heard. That makes you a messenger. So when it says that you are a messenger, when he says, I'm sending my messenger, for us, that's talking about you. You don't have to know who the leader is who's coming. What you have to know is that you're a messenger. That's your job. That's your assignment. You are a messenger. And the, and, and the only question is, what kind of messenger are you? Are you a good messenger? Are you a competent messenger? Are you a messenger with integrity? Are you a messenger who gives a consistent message? And by consistent, I mean you say and do the same thing. Because trust me, there are enough messengers that say one thing and do something else. He says, I'm sending my messenger. I'm sending Malachi. I'm sending someone who is different from all the other folk. What's the problem with all the other folk, God? The problem with all the other folk is that they're not listening to me. They're using me to prop up their own agenda. Oops. I think I just said something. So much of what's wrong with the church is that there are those who call themselves messengers who are not interested in sharing the message of God, but are interested in infusing the name of God in their message. Think about what I just said. Yeah, that, that, that's one example. The other one is when they're trying to promote their own agenda. Send me $29.95 as a seed. And the Lord is going to bless you for, 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 for the seed that you have planted. If you don't have it, go borrow it. I, 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 was, I was talking with somebody earlier today, and they were telling me about one of our messenger friends who's local, around, well, almost local, down there in Darrow. 
and, and, and I didn't call his name. I just said down there in Darrow. There are a whole lot of churches in Darrow, so you, you figure out the one I'm talking about. But, 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 but down there, somebody put $1,000 on the altar while he was speaking, and he looked at it and said, is that all you can do? The Lord told me you can do better than that. Now, that ain't God. That ain't God. That's people using God to promote their own message. God says, I'm sending Malachi. I'm sending him because I know him and he knows me. We talk to one another. Now, what's the point for you? I've already told you that, that everybody in here has somebody who's looking at them. Here's the other point for you to pick up. It is extremely important that you know who it is you're listening to and what it is they're saying. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, he was talking about civil rights and racism. He says, a man can't ride your back unless it's bent. Folk can't fool you if you know what it is you're talking about. You know, how, you, you know how you get deceived so easily? Because you don't know nothing. And you know why you don't know nothing? Because you ain't bothered to prepare yourself. Yes. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent goes and finds the woman uh, who, who had been told by her husband, do not take of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do that, you will surely die. The serpent goes to the woman and, 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 and he doesn't start with a lie. He starts with a question. And the question is designed to find out what you know. Did God really say? Did God really say you can't have from that tree? And by the way that the woman answered, the serpent knew that the woman didn't know what she was talking about. We can't eat of it we can't even touch it. Because if we touch it, we would. Well, see, that, that's not what God said. Now, it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's not a subtle difference. It's a design to find out what you know. And once she said, you can't even touch it, the serpent knew that the woman didn't know what she was talking about. Now he lies to her. You will not die. And then he exacerbates the lie. God is scared of you. God knows that if you eat of this particular fruit, you will be like him. And God doesn't want you to be like him. But understand, the lie was only effective because the serpent first knew that the woman didn't know what she was talking about. Man can't ride your back unless it's bent. Folk gonna sit around and figure out what you know and what you don't know. And once they're shrewd, they, 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 they are sharp folk. And, and they, I told you before, my mom used to tell me all the time, if you just listen to folk, folk will tell you everything you need to know. Yes, sir. She, she would tell me, don't talk so much, because I had a tendency to talk a lot. Y'all can't tell that now, but I had a tendency. 
to talk a lot. And she would say, don't talk so much. Listen. If you listen, folk will tell you everything you need to know. There are shysters out there in pulpits wearing $5,000 suits and a ring on every finger and bracelets and bling all over the place now, talking about how the Lord blessed them. And, 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 and all they're doing is feeling you out to figure out where they can press in order to get from you, not what God wants, but what they want from you. And what is incumbent upon us to do is to learn how to discern between those who just talk about God and those who know God. And too many of us listen to folk who, who ain't never had a conversation with God in their lives. They, they, they can quote scripture with the best of them. But they, they've never had a conversation with God. What they do is they infuse God into their thing and get you to support their thing with the promise that by you supporting their thing, God's going to reward you. Look, I'm sending my messenger on ahead to clear the way for me. Suddenly, out of the blue, the leader you've been looking for will enter his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant, the one you've been waiting for. Look, he's on his way. A message from the mouth of the God of the angel armies. But who will be able to stand up to that coming? Who can survive his appearance? He'll be like white hot fire from the smeller's furnace. He'll be like the strongest live soap at the laundry. He'll take his place as the refiner of silver as a cleanser of dirty clothes. He'll scrub the Levite priests clean, refine them like gold and silver until they're fit for God, fit to present offerings of righteousness. Then and only then will Judah and Jerusalem be fit and pleasing to God as they used to be in the years long ago. Yes, I'm on my way to visit you with judgment. I'll present compelling evidence against sorcerers, adulterers, liars, those who exploit workers, those who take advantage of widows and orphans, those who are inhospitable to the homeless, anyone and everyone who does not honor me. A message from God of the angel army. Yes. Wizards. People who practice the, the art of witchcraft. Astrologers. You know, y'all who, who know your sign. A Taurus can't marry a Libra because the children will be. Y'all who know all that stuff. You can't say amen. Just say out. All, all of that has to do with that. People who are out to deceive will use whatever is at their disposal to deceive you. 
and they do it for their own profit. I want you to notice something. God says that the only way that worship will be right is that I clean them up. At the, at, at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, I'm sending my messenger, I'm sending Malachi to prepare the way for me. But Malachi can't do the cleaning. The cleaning can't be done till I show up. There's an important message in that. I got seven minutes. There's an important message in there for us. It's important that we understand the difference between what we can do and what we can't do. And that we do all that God says we can do, but that we refrain from trying to do what we can't do. The cleaning can only be done by God. Now, there's several reasons for that. Reason number one is that God is the only one who's clean enough to clean everybody else. Dirty folk can't clean dirty folk. If they could, they'd start with themselves. But dirty folk can't clean dirty folk. Only clean folk can do that. And, and, and there's only one who's clean. There's only one who, who's fit. Ah, uh, let me go to Revelation now. <laughs> Bible says that, 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 that uh, God was, was in a place where he was ready to send somebody to clean the world, to, to, to redeem the world. And, 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 and there was one problem. Heaven and earth was searched. And John says, no one was found who was worthy. He, he, he says, I, I sat there and I watched and I looked. And, and, and there were folk who volunteered to do the cleaning. But they had to be denied because they couldn't do it. Preachers say it like this. Moses put up his hand. Moses said, I'll, I'll go. God said, no, you can't go. You killed a man, and you disobeyed me. When I told you to talk to the rock, you struck the rock. You, you, you can't go. David said, I'll go. God said, no, you can't go. I couldn't even let you build the temple because there's too much innocent blood on your hands. Solomon said, I'll go. And God said, no, you got a woman problem. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I, 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 I can't let you go. Noah said, I'll go. He said, no, you know, you, 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 you built the ark, but you also got drunk and passed out in your tent. You, 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 you can't go. Jeremiah said, I'll go. He said, no, you cry all the time. 
and, and you always ready to quit and give up and, and, and go home. No, you can't. And John says, I began to weep. Because no one was found worthy. And as I was sitting there sulking, as I was sitting there crying, as I was sitting there weeping with my shoulders hunched and, and tears falling down my face, the Bible says that the angel came over and touched him and said, it's all right. There is one. There's one who stepped out from behind the canopy of eternity and said, I'll go. Who is that one? He's the fairest of 10,000. Who is that one? He's the lily of the valley. Who is that one? He's the bright and morning star. Who is that one? He's the wheel in the middle of the wheel. Who is that one? He's the stone that the builders rejected that became the capstone. Who is that one? He's the one who was there before there was a when or a where, for the earth was built by him, and everything that was made was made by him, and without him was not anything that was made made. There's only one who's worthy to do the cleaning. So if you run across anybody, I'm done. If you run across anybody who says, I can clean you up, run as fast as you can. Because dirty folk can clean dirty folk. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.